iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. Today, Thomas Tuchel's disruptive approach at Chelsea. Will he win more friends than enemies? Elsewhere, Fulham do just enough to claw themselves back into the hunt for survival, leaving Newcastle fans sweating. Gareth Bale shows Spurs that attack is their best form of defence. And what sort of risk do clubs take with their new managers? We'll also talk about Klopp and Ancelotti's approaches. Another very busy episode of the game ahead to help me through it all. Alison Rudd, Matt Dickinson and Gregor Roberts. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. Excellent. A lot better, I think, than Callum Hudson-Odoi was doing at the weekend. Let's start with Chelsea <laughs> and get straight into it because Thomas Tuchel, their boss, has revealed he has spoken to Callum Hudson-Odoi privately after Chelsea's one-all draw with Southampton at the weekend. The 20-year-old Hudson-Odoi brought off the bench only to be substituted half an hour later. Tuchel criticised him, his energy levels, his attitude as well. But he has told the club's website that maybe it was harsh. He did go on to say he thinks it's not a big thing. He's known Thomas Tuchel for his abrasive style. We've seen that, especially given his angry reactions on the touchline since taking over at Chelsea. Two draws, four wins in his first six league games. Gregor, a positive start for the German, do you think? I think so on the whole. Um, you know, he did from the outset. He was kind of we were a bit, little bit wondering what his formation was going to be, what his approach was going to be, and and he seems to be fairly wedded to the to the three at the back, and I think that's largely been a success. Um, and Chelsea seem, seem to be getting a lot of players forward and a lot of players high up the pitch. Um, brought Alonso back into the team. Hudson Odoi has been good at wing back. We'll come to him in a moment. Um, we've got so many options that's the thing and I think you know that was the that was the intriguing thing from the outset how is he going to which players is he going to pick first of all and in which, which system um, and I think there are so many options available available to him but I think they, they look like a, a coherent certainly a coherent attacking force um, still seem to be some spaces occasionally um, in midfield but I think I think it's a positive start on the whole I just think this was a slightly um, unnecessary uh, moment at Southampton at the weekend. A couple of big games coming up for them. They've got Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. They've got Manchester United in the Premier League this week. Um, Matt, they had three shots on target against Southampton. They scored a Mason Mount penalty. All that to show for 71% possession. It's not totally clicking, is it? It isn't, but I mean, you know, he has been there five minutes and I think Greg is right. I think he's arrived with a, a clear 
you know, certainly the tactical um, strategic view of the team. He came in with a sort of impression straight away. There's a couple of surprises within it of, of sort of particular individual players, but I think you know he's come with uh, the you know the confidence of a manager who has you know has been around the block certainly compared to, to Frank Lampard and had a vision of what he wanted from them. And yeah, there's been there's a few glitches in it. Um, certainly to to iron out and Atletico will be a, uh, a heck of a test of those glitches. But uh, you know I think we are seeing. Uh, Say a, a coach with a plan, um, and I think given given the amount of options that he's still got to work through and to understand, I, I, I say I think I think if you're Thomas Tuchel, you're, you're thinking that you know things have um, have started off pretty well. Do you think his abrasive style, Matt's going to work at a club like Chelsea? Well, uh, abrasive. Well, I'm not sure what style works at Chelsea because you can be as unabrasive as Carlo Ancelotti and still. Um, <laughs> still get shouted at by uh, I think was it Ancelotti famously got summoned in for a bollocking after a 5-0 win over West Brom or something like that didn't he so you know it's like the classic Goldilocks club you know, it's always too hot or too cold or never quite right um, for the owner at Chelsea but I think you know you two take a risk um, every time you sort of you know go to sort of public uh, have a public spat with a player but you know we think we need to be grown up on this don't we it's like you know he's a young player who's been told that he didn't you know apply himself quite as much and I think if a manager can't do that he's put it in some kind of context he's explained it he says that he spoke to to Hudson Adoy afterwards yeah I'd, you know I say I, I think I think we should probably be um, all be grown up enough to, up enough to sort of see that this is something that's you know can happen, should be allowed to happen. Um, and I suspect Hudson Odoi will return eager to prove something. Yeah, Thomas Tuchel after the game, Alison, sort of said, look, I'll leave it up to you guys in the media to make a thing out of this. So here we are. But the fans also think <laughs> something of it. Why, why do you think subbing a sub is so taboo in football? Well, it's just the most humiliating thing you can go through, I think. I mean, just imagine if it's you, just picture yourself. Uh, you know, you, you're on the bench. You've been courted by Bayern Munich. Um, Chelsea fans love you. You you had the sort of player power that was part of the reason that Sarri got sacked um, because he didn't play you enough or the fans didn't think so. You're probably feeling pretty good about yourself and you're raring to go. You think, you know, I've done well so far under this manager. I've had rave reviews in the media that I can... I'm a pretty good um, wing back. I, I'm good going forward. I'm pretty pacey, but I've got that pace to get back and help the defence if it goes slightly awry. You sort of seem perfect for the role. You come on <laughs> with all that bubbling away in your psyche and then you're hauled off again after half an hour. It's it's just public. It's like the parent that slaps the child's bottom in the supermarket. You you know, save it for, don't do it, don't do it in front of people. If he's got a problem with him, I would say, really, was his performance so dreadful it required that level of humiliation? And the point of it, I think, is that by being prepared to take him off, he is sort of letting us know he has other issues with him, that maybe he feels he's the sort of character that requires a bit of head in the stocks, eggs thrown to to do what he wants because he's taken a completely different view with other players. Timo Werner, for example, he's told us he's somebody that requires 
arm around the shoulder and maybe that's not enough. You need to keep telling him how good he is, but maybe that's not enough. So I think, I mean, Matt says, come on, let's be grown up enough to know you should be allowed to do it. Of course you should be allowed to do it. But if you put it in the context of how he's managed so far, I think he's sending a bigger message to um, the owners and the fans and us that that he, he really needs to give him a bit of a bollocking. But I do think, I mean, uh, Alison said the biggest humiliation. I mean, I think there, there is a worse humiliation, which is not being involved at all. And, and you know, in a squad like Chelsea's, that, that can easily happen to a player for a month or two at a time. So, you know, he has been given, you know, he was one of the, the great winners of, the, of Tuka's arrival in terms of being given this new role, being trusted to do it. Um, he's, you know, been given a chance to to reinvent himself in, in, in the position. So, you know, I think the upside is way for, for, for Hudson Adoy, you know, should massively outweigh one, you know, slap on the bottom to face, whichever, wherever you want to call it. Um, and, uh, you know, I say, and, and maybe he is a player that, you know, maybe he is a player that does need that slap. As you, as Alison says, some, some respond back to that. Um, obviously we go back to Jose Mourinho famously doing the same with Joe Cole countless times, you know, Cole would do some act of beauty on the pitch and Mourinho would walk in the dressing room, they'd walk into the press conference afterwards and slag him off and not track him back. And he just felt that that was the type of approach that Cole needed compared to others. I do think the main thing though, is that the manager has to always make sure this is about the team getting better and not about him. You know, it can't become a pantomime about, you know, this is me proving how strong I am as a manager. It can't be a pantomime about, you know, sending messages left, right and centre. It's got to be about how you get the best out of your players and make the team better. My instinct is that it is only a message to him. Tuchel doesn't strike me as someone who is who's sending a message to the rest of the squad or to the owner or anyone like that. I think he also referenced the last time he came on, I think against Sheffield United, that he also wasn't up to scratch. So he's, he's basically highlighting a, a specific flaw in that, you know, he's been good from the, very good from the start, but when I'm introducing him, he's not, he's not on it. He's not getting into the game quickly enough. Um, but personally, I didn't see the justification. I didn't see what he was doing so badly. And, you know, there must've been specific triggers in the press or something like that, that he was seeing he wasn't doing, or he, you know, maybe just wasn't quite switched on to, to what he'd asked them to do specifically. Very, it must've been very specific, but um, yeah, I, I think that the other, the other good thing is that in straight away from the outset, he said, tomorrow's forgotten. You know, for him, it didn't seem like a big issue. Obviously it will be for Hudson Doyle. He's going to be embarrassed, but he said, tomorrow's forgotten. And I, you know, he was even saying this it's old fashioned to think that this is something that I can't do. And he's, he's very honest. He's from the start. Remember he was talking about the, what was that? A block six or something. <laughs> he's, you know, he just, he just kind of says what he thinks. And this is what he thought. But Gregor, don't you think it might be an unnecessary embarrassment for a young player? He's not, he's not your average young player. Callum hudson Adoy. He's already played international football uh, for England. Um, has it happened during your career to others or to yourself? And um, how do players usually react to it? It's not happened to me. I think, yeah, I mean, I have seen, substitutes taken off but you, you would have to be having a shocker really and as I say I don't think Hudson Adoy was certainly not from my perspective um, and yes yeah, it's, it's embarrassing it's 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 pretty humiliating but it's not something you can't move beyond in the space of like a day or two um, and as long as as Tuchel has said or intimated it's forgotten the next day you know, the, the, the slate, slate's wiped clean, he's not going to hold a grudge, uh, then it, it's no big deal. 
I I don't think personally. There are, you know, it's always kind of treated like this is the some big taboo that you can't criticize players in in public. And as a rule, I think there is truth in that. But I just feel that Tuchel's kind of I don't know. He's he, he's new, and he doesn't seem to work but play by those rules. He doesn't seem to probably know that much about those rules. Perhaps I don't know. Maybe it's slightly different. Uh, maybe it's not that's kind of an English cultural thing or British football. But he didn't seem bothered by it, by it at all. And as I say, the main thing is he just thought, you know, that's done. And he's in, he's in, he could be in line to start against Atletico. Uh, we'll see if the situation improves for Callum Hudson-Odoi at Chelsea. Um, but you mentioned shockers there, Gregor. So that takes us on to our next story. Uh, a, a tale of defensive calamity helping to contribute to a 2-1 defeat for Spurs at the London Stadium in the derby with West Ham. Spurs have now lost five of their last six league games. They dropped down to ninth in the table. But really... It was their positive second half performance from 2-0 down that made people sit up and take note. 70% possession in the game, 20 shots at goal. Compare that to just four for West Ham. It was a different Spurs, Matt. Jose Mourinho, in my opinion, has no choice from here on out. He's got to throw caution to the wind and play far more attacking football. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, a partly a feature of that, obviously, was that West Ham, you know, just decided to... Uh... Uh, sit on it um, and and invited Spurs on and, and just sort of went for the resistance tactic um, for for a lot of that second half. But I, you know, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think you know <laughs> we spoke about this right even when I think Spurs were doing well. That you know, asking Harry Kane to you know spend an awful lot of time back in his own half tracking back or you know Son to 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 spend his life you know chasing back towards his own goal has a limited shelf life and that you know that these guys he was doing well to in some ways to 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 get that out of them at that time but it it, it couldn't last um so yeah i i, th- I think you're right I, I think i think they have needed more uh uh, more boldness, um, and especially if they're going to sort of st- stop stop the rot. Alison, one player who looks like he's starting to wake up at Tottenham Hotspur of late is Gareth Bale, the Welshman. You know, the, the dragon's no longer a myth. Should we call it that? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Well, what could you possibly be referring to? You, well, I mean, he was he was a myth, and and in fact, I think you could argue. Him coming off the bench and performing the way he did added to the myth because if you don't see something coming, it's slightly magical, isn't it? Nobody, <laughs> nobody thought, nobody thought he would look. I was there at the game, and you're very high up, and uh, you see the movement, and you, honestly, he was so relaxed. It was as if t- you know you turn back the clock and all his all the doubts about whether he was really keen on playing at all and how into it he was and whether he'd ever feature as a regular first teamer for Spurs or it was just some sort of ridiculous publicity stunt. None of that was evident at all. He had a very good connection with his teammates, very good understanding. He was sort of, um, he, he didn't look like he was trying too hard. It was a sort of effortless, floaty, reading the game well, making the right decisions, took an intelligent corner for for the Spurs goal to set that up. Um, and it was, I would, you know, I'm, I'm not going to backtrack. I'm going to say he's still a myth because to be able to do that 
having looked like he could only do it against lower league or lower level opposition and just wasn't at the pace for the Premier League, makes you think, what's what's been going on? And his manager says, oh, you know, he's, he's still not ready. Don't blame me for him not being on for the whole game. He's not got it in him. It definitely looks like he now probably could. He should very soon be playing, aiming to play for the full 90 minutes because he's he's now looks like the bail we all we all liked so much, the one that did actually try quite hard to, to make it work at Real Madrid. So it's it's not that he's stopped being a myth. The fact that you can go from laughing stock to really quite um, it's almost like a superior calmness about him is phenomenal. I was I was really impressed. Well, yeah, he hasn't been a bad player over the years. I, I, I think he's finally getting to that point where he seems a little bit freer in his movement. The muscles seem a bit more relaxed. The trickery with the ball seems to be just a little bit faster. And even in the Europa League game before this weekend, just more decisiveness in his play. And of course, for a forward player, that's exactly what you need. It's important though that he's also getting more than like a twenty-minute cameo. You got to see a, you got. It's very hard for any player, you know, even if you're Gareth Bale, to come on and make an impact in those little kind of snapshots. And so he's had a start, and he's had a whole second half when West Ham were sitting off, and Spurs were chasing the game essentially. So there was space in the pitch. But yeah, I mean, look, a, a fit and healthy and firing Gareth Bale could be kind of transformative for Spurs in the between now and the end of the season. It's just whether he can. A, be given the minutes and B, maintain that kind of level of play. The other thing that's going to be massive for Spurs before the end of the season is going to be their defence, Gregor. Talk to me about their back line. Um, Jose Mourinho's got 81 points in his first 50 league games at Spurs. Compare that to 85 for Mauricio Pochettino in his last 50 games. How concerned should Spurs fans be with that defence? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, even if you look in the last this kind of run of eight games or something, conceding about an average of two goals a game um, over in all comps in the last eight games, and I don't know the, the the goal. There was quite a lot made of of the of the first goal, West Ham's first goal, and I actually think that it was just a it was a magnificent cross, really really hard to defend. You know, was the air kind of caught underneath it? I'm not sure. There was a little bit of movement and. You know, Luris, even when uh, Antonio got a touch on the ball, it was kind of very close into Luris. It was, I just thought that was a really good cross into the box. Uh, very difficult to defend. So I'm not going to... Uh, there's many times I would, I've criticised uh, Eric Dyer and and, and uh, Spurs defenders this season. I'm not sure that's one of them. That should be one of them. And the second goal was a bit of a freak. It's kind of deflection that kind of bundled Jesse Lingard through. Um, so... But the, the broader picture is, I think, when Spur, when Jose Mourinho was making those comments afterwards about there being problems in the team that I can't, as a coach, I can't fix, I think he's alluding to the defenders he has at his disposal, basically. Um, you know, some people are thinking, is, are there players who are, who are, whose attitudes are they working as kind of, as hard as they should be for him? Uh, maybe, but it, it doesn't really matter. I think the main thing is he's not got, defenders are good enough to play in a team where you're asked to defend for more than half the game. That's That really is, that is Spurs' biggest issue for Mourinho. There were interesting quotes. He says his side have problems in the team that he cannot resolve by himself as a coach and that no coach can. And yeah, you're right. I think he was uh, talking about their defence. One thing that does help though, Gregor, 
is if the midfielder tracks the run into the box, which uh, they didn't. I think that was Pablo Fornals. And I, I think the players who could have blocked Jared Bowen's cross as well, you know, there, there, are, there is help that that Spurs defence needs. Regulon collided with uh, Suchek, I believe it was. And that created the space. I think the Spurs players, yeah, they stood around a little bit. They could have maybe pressed them. That that gave Bowen time to get the ball out of his feet and look up. And if I think if you're asking, I think it was Moura, to track Fornals to the front post, you're probably expecting a little bit much from a, from a winger. I think really there could have been better communication there. And I think Lloris needs to be more commanding. He's, he, there's no need for him to be on, you know, wedded to his goal line there. I think if he's a couple of yards off his goal line, he might come in, even if it's a punch. He, you know, he's, Lloris has been poor for a, for a number of weeks now. And I think there's a kind of, you know, there's not much confidence in him there. And there's not much confidence really in any of the kind of cent- central core of, of uh, Spurs defensively. Um, even, even Hoiberg's having a bit of a lull, I think, after a really good start, promising start to his Spurs career. So, yeah, look, defend, defending is a is is a big problem for Spurs. And as I say again, when we've spoken about what Mourinho is asking of his team, when he's even if they're if they're getting in the lead, he asks them to essentially, you know, be very cautious and defend it. And even when the scores are nil nil, he's still pretty cautious. It's only when we're only really seeing Spurs as a kind of potent attacking force when they go behind, and they're going behind a lot. Matt, Jose Mourinho also says, sometimes results are a consequence of multiple situations in football. Mine and my coaching staff's methods are second to nobody in the world. Um, it doesn't really seem like a hidden message. <laughs> what, what do you think he's getting at? Well, yeah, I think Gregor alluded to it uh, there as well about you know the fact that, um, well, obviously it's never Jose's fault. Obviously, that's the first <laughs> thing to be absolutely 100% clear about in all situations. Um, and yeah, I think he does, you know, um, there's been, I picked up messages about, you know, something like the, the, the bail signing. I mean, he's going to have to use bail, but uh, obviously there's no fee involved, but there's still an awful lot of uh, wages going out of the club uh, Two, three hundred thousand quid a week, um, and I think there is a probably a feeling for Mourinho that that money could have been spent, uh, spent better. I mean, in terms of defensive reinforcements, they end up going to Swansea for a you know was it sort of ten odd million quid for a Joe Rodon rather than looking to buy a top 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 level player. Um, I think you'll probably have plenty of references to the sort of 65 million quid that Man City spent on fixing their defensive problems in the summer. So I think that's, um, yeah, I think as, as usual, Jose is trying to um, divert attention and, and uh, you yeah, know, he hasn't cited the, uh, the chairman yet, but um, give it another few dodgy weeks. And um, I, 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 I suspect he's more likely to get more feisty rather than lesser. I mean, he could also be referencing the kind of broader structures of how they're recruiting players. Doherty's been a really strange strange one for them as well and you, you would kind of instinctively think that was a good signing for, for, for Mourinho and you know he's he's thinking what was it I think he's had three starts since November something like that and he came on gave the ball away and West Ham went through and scored it's, it's, that's not worked out um, and so now they're relying on uh, Tanganga at right back and yeah Hoiberg's been a success but aside from that I, you know they're Spurs aren't really doing particularly well in the transfer market either. And I don't know how, you know, that, that is not entirely the, something that can be laid 
uh, at the door of Jose Mourinho. But also whether it is just, yeah, I mean, Jose does have this habit, doesn't he? Of, I mean, he very much forms the sort of players he trusts and with the Doherty thing, whether it's, have we seen enough to know whether it's, you know, a player fitting in or whether it's just fitting in the Spurs system or Jose, you know, he, he, he can use a, a quite a tight sort of cabal rather than trying to use the, use the whole squad because he tends to, Get quite fixed and firm, and, and and strong views about certain players being being out, um, as we saw even with you know Ndombele for a while. So I, I think um, I, you know I, I, that way it's easy for him to sort of cast off the blame, but ultimately you know manager's job is to to get full use of the full squad. Um, so you know it's not like he can just divert all questions away. Alison, let's reflect on West Ham into the top four. David Moyes doing a magical job there. He's he's almost got Jose Mourinho's number, hasn't he? <laughs> well, it was the first time he's uh, defeated a Mourinho team. Um, it's really interesting, West Ham. They are they are in the Champions League places, and they're not using flair players to do it. Their their results are based on spirit and graft and knowing what they are. And um, I think you can sum up the entire West Ham approach by the fact that Thomas Suchek had to go off for seven minutes because he was pouring blood from above his eye. And they just were prepared to wait for him. I did wonder how long they might wait for him. I mean, he's, I know he's integral to the team, but he, it was strange. He didn't even, it didn't even feel like a, the wrong thing to do. I mean, imagine if, Spurs had scored when they were down to 10 men. Imagine if the rhythm of the team had been completely lost. Imagine if he couldn't come back on and then it took another three or four minutes to sort the substitution out and Spurs scored again. But it, as it unfolded, it felt perfectly natural that he is uh, so important to the team, both in terms of what he does on the pitch and his personality as well, that you felt, yeah, yeah, this is fine, this is fine. They need to get him back on the pitch and and carry on with this sort of crusading approach they have. Even Jesse Lingard, it's not about his, it's not so much about his skill as his attitude. There's a sort of um, energy about him, upbeatness. So if you, if you sort of pair it back, West Ham don't look terribly interesting or exciting, but as a collective, they've got it nailed, I think. And that's... Um, I think that's really important in a season where lots of weird things are happening um, to be able to to create that atmosphere. So I suppose, I suppose when you say he's teaching Reno something, he's teaching him the power of a tight knit group and that you can make something very effective out of something that on paper most people had as probably being in a relegation battle. You mentioned creating an atmosphere. Do you think they can go and finish in the top four? Well, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I wouldn't say it's daft to ask the question at all. Because they keep, they found a sort of consistency and they don't really mind if they don't look very good. Um, You know, I think a lot of managers are sort of a bit precious about what, they know and the impression they give and the system and the entertainment value. But I think, I think Moyes 
there is there is something to be said for not caring about that and having but the fact, the fact almost the fact they don't have any pressure to finish in the top four in fact they don't have any pressure to finish in the European places at all that's a huge advantage isn't it that nobody nobody's taking them that seriously I think that could be I mean the pressure is going to get, get intense as the season comes to its climax because there are a lot of clubs who for whom managers will be sacked if they don't make the top four or at least don't make Europe and Moyes isn't under that sort of pressure so I think that's an extra few few pieces of advantage in, in the jigsaw of whether they do it or not I wouldn't put I wouldn't put a lot of money on it I wouldn't put a bitcoin on it Matt Dickinson but <laughs> I, I, um, I, I, I don't think it's ridiculous I think Alice has been a wee bit harsh on West Ham. I think, although this game, they were very much... Oh, I'm being really lovely. What well, you're saying that they're kind of industrious and not exciting and things. There's been games when West Ham have been really good to watch this season. That, that wasn't one of them, <laughs> per se. The, kind of, the second half, after they scored the second goal, OK, let's sit in and let's defend this. And they did so brilliantly. And the, the kind of double pivot of Declan Rice and Suchek is... Has been outstanding. Like there's no, there's nothing that compares to it in the rest of the Premier League this season, really. Um, maybe Leicester with Telemans and and Indeedy or Mendy beside them. But um, and but still, you know, Bowen Bowen. The thing is, they've got players now who are not not only have a bit of quality in the final third, and you know can make a difference, but they're also they're, they marry that with the industry. They're not kind of West Ham have always had the odd luxury player, or, or uh, you know, and, and keeping Antonio fit, I think, will be the big, biggest thing for them. He just, you know, get, keeping him on a, a solid run of games between now, between now and the end of the season, he is he is a nightmare for defenders to face. Um, and the Lingard story is brilliant because, you know, he, he's had some stick, hasn't he? He's had some stick over the years, at, you know, in the kind of post Fergie era at Manchester United, and you know he's. Instagram love, uh, <laughs> but he, 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 there was the kind of little picture this uh, after the game where I think you know they did that celebration and I think he's he's mocked up like, like they're a boy band and put instruments in everyone's hands. They have taken to him. You can tell he's always been a popular member of the dressing room, no matter what the kind of public's perception of him has been, and he's he's fit in there seamlessly. You can see it. That's absolutely clear, and that's really good. That's a really good story. I think this season. I think, that, and, and the Moy story, isn't it? I mean, I think the Lingard thing's great, but I mean, the bigger picture, the Moy, you know, yeah, is it Moy's is, you know, he, he went through the ringer for a bit, and the fact is that you know, it's despite, you know, it's almost as if you know, you 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 have that, you know, season gone wrong at Man United, and it's like suddenly you know, you're use, you know, you're useless, or you know, you've never done anything good, or you're negative or you're this or you're that and suddenly all these labels start start sticking to him and you know it's not easy you know once you pick up labels it's not easy to cast them off so I, I just think it's fantastic I you know I've always regarded I've always liked David Moyes I think you know it's not that not they can't see certain you know flaws in any manager but I've always just thought he's one of the good guys in football one of the straight guys in football a guy who works you know endlessly to try and improve teams and players you can see what the best thing about this West Ham is you can see what they're doing on the training pitch played out you can see individual improvements in players and you can see him trying to create a certain culture of a, a new West Ham what what have West Ham stood for in the last you know five or so years apart from fans screaming at the owners 
owners being unpopular, owners throwing money at trying to sort of buy themselves some popularity. And I think David Moyes is at last trying to give a particular team a particular identity, um, which is, you know, and even if it is that, it, that is a grafter's um, identity, that's, that is no bad thing as someone like Everton, uh, West Ham that's lacked it, you know, and it's, um, I, I, th- I think it's just, it's, it's a sort of happy happy story in so many ways. I would just say that they've got a heck of a run of fixtures coming up. So, um, you know, I think being real, top four is too much, but top six would be amazing. Yeah, Matt, heck of a run for West Ham, Manchester City, Leeds, Manchester United, and then Arsenal. We'll see if their top four hopes remain intact after that run. But it's a fantastic moment for the West Ham fans, I'm sure. They're enjoying things at the moment. And if you're enjoying our podcast, then of course, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. Just make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode For more award-winning journalism, you can get The Times and The Sunday Times on all of your devices. Sign up today. You'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, Scott Parker's Fulham have given themselves a lifeline in the Premier League survival stakes thanks to a 1-0 win over Sheffield United. They've only lost three of their last 14 Premier League games, but they've only won two of them. Six points, though, in their last three matches mean they are now only three points from safety with Newcastle just above them. Uh, Alison, do you think Fulham are going to survive? Yes. (laughs) New Year House, is it? <laughs> oh, Gregor, Gregor, you're so cynical. Just because I can cycle to Fulham. Um, yeah, no, I think I think it'd be, honestly, trying to be objective, I think it would be really quite disappointing if Fulham didn't stay up because they can't do more than they've done. They tried to stick with the team that won promotion because they didn't do that last time and that didn't work. But it, it, they looked dreadful. They looked they looked completely fragile at the back. They changed it. They've bought well. They've changed the system. They've, and they've managed to make that gel. They've made themselves very hard to beat. 
they also play some of the prettiest football still. They have, they do have flair. And you kind of think, well, if you've done all that and you're entertaining, you know, for goodness sake, you've got to stay up. Otherwise, what's the point of football if that doesn't allow you to stay up? I agree they probably need, well, they obviously need uh, Newcastle or someone else to start having a bit of a, a, a bad time and uh, take their place in the bottom three. But I think there's a thing, you know, you, you can be too too good and still go down. And, you know, Norwich last season were very entertaining. But they, they didn't, what they didn't, although Norwich were entertaining, they didn't have what Fulham do have, which is, um, a, you know, a back four or back five, depending on what, 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 what Park has chosen, that, that look like they're really hard to breach. And, and that, that has, you know, that's supposed to be the basis for, 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 for winning the league, let alone staying in it. So I just think, um, you know, if there's any, uh, uh, any bigger narrative, if there are gods in football, they should say, yeah, sure, that needs to stay up. And I, I do think they will. I do think they will. And wouldn't it be fantastic if it was the last day of the season and it was Fulham v Newcastle, winner takes all. And then Fulham would win because they've had the playoffs and they know about these one game takes all scenarios. So yes, and then yes is my answer. Matt, they seem a little bit hungrier than the teams around them at the moment. And of course, as Alison alluded to, they've added some real quality to their squad, including attacking areas. Adam Ola Lookman looks a top half player, to be frank. Well, you, you mentioned attacking, but I think the biggest change has got to be solidifying the back, hasn't it? I mean, I was there actually on the opening day of the season um, when they just got, uh, I mean, it was just thrashed would be a, a nice, be kind to say when, when Arsenal turned up and they had, it was Hector and Ream at centre-half. And yeah, to say they looked, you know, like they were going to be out of their depth all season would be a, would be a, an understatement. Um, I think, you know, speaking to a couple of Fulham fans after that, just said, look, if we're sticking with that, you know, that partnership, then, then we're stuffed already. So, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, obviously Lookman is after his, you know, he's done great to, to, to come back from uh, the, the, the infamous penalty wobble and, and is giving them some bite. But I think, you know, they've changed goalkeeper and both centre halves um, since the start of the season. And I think that's been as, as crucial, just they've, they've got, more streetwise, they've lost some of that sort of naivety that looked like it might be there that was going to kill them in the in the first month or two of the year of the season. Fulham are a bit like Brighton in my eyes. I think if you look at the teams, the bottom seven, you know the the whole thing this season is about any of those bottom three teams finding one that's <laughs> finding one team that's worse than them. And I think there are teams that are worse than Fulham. You look at their numbers; they they average about. 49% possession, which is about the same as Spurs. It's more than Wolves, Everton and West Ham. And that's obviously not everything, but it shows that they, you know, like Brighton, they play good football. Uh, they look to kind of control the game as, as much as they can, despite their kind of lowly status. Uh, their goal difference is better than any team but Brighton in the bottom seven, which is another indicator of, um, you know, fine margins. And and like like Brighton again, and expected goals they're 10th. Brighton are kind of something stupid like 5th. But, you know, and people take that with a pinch of salt, and they should. But there is, you know, the underlying numbers show that Fulham are a good team. Um, and now it's about turning them into results. It's been about finishing. You know, Maja scored a couple of goals. They need him to score some score some more goals. I still see goal scoring as being their biggest problem. Uh, they just relied upon a mistake from, a mistake by Ethan Ampadu. Um 
it was un- it was a little bit unfortunate to be honest. But Andy relied upon. Can we briefly discuss that? How that wasn't a penalty at the end. Um, <laughs> you know, we've spoken all season about. I have particularly about follow through challenges and how it doesn't. Now nowadays it doesn't matter whether you've won the ball or not. And the referee could. Sorry, the goalkeeper could have could have broken <laughs> could have broken Bogle's leg there. Anyway, that was all of that aside, Fulham were the better team. It's just who they're gonna catch. Even Newcastle have lost Callum Wilson, that's a big blow. Newcastle are the team everyone's looking at. You know, football's a game with a lot of luck plays plays its part. So Fulham, I think as I say, I think there are worse teams in the Premier League than Fulham. And I could say the same about Brighton. That doesn't mean they won't finish in the bottom three, unfortunately. Matt, do you think Scott Parker's influence as a manager goes a little bit under the radar at the moment? We've spoken about some of the great, you know, Pep calling Graham Potter the greatest English manager right now, for example. Do you think he deserves more credit? Uh, we certainly, he'll certainly get it if he, if he keeps them up. But no, I think, there, yeah, I think there has been um, impressive work, um, say, particularly when you consider that he's, you know, he's blooded in uh, quite a number of different players. I think they've, I think there's something about Fulham that, reflects Parker and that they've kept their nerve this time they've tried to do it in a much steadier sort of you know they tried to build a, a new team um rather than you know um sort of throw a whole lot of money at it and just sort of throw the players out as as they did was it after the summer of 2018 um so no I think Scott Parker you know again you can see you can see good work good training ground work being been shown on the pitch and I think that's 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 always the first critical test of any manager isn't it um so no, I, you know, I think, I mean, I think, you know, and considering how relatively young he is into the trade, um, that has to be, you know, Potter's been around longer. Um, we sort of know his stamp. I think, I imagine Scott Parker is still trying to explore what he wants from a particular team and movement. I mean, he's, you know, he's a young guy still learning. I think he's been really impressive. And I think, I think he stocks higher now, or it was even higher before they've had a couple of wins recently, than it was at any point in their promotion-winning campaign until probably he was standing on the turf and he delivered that really kind of engaging post-match interview where you saw the emotion and how much you know the the weight and the pressure of being a manager where you're expected to be winning promotion, um, and after you know all the things he had to deal with last season after you know he took over after they rolled the dice with Ranieri and the team were already essentially relegated and he had to kind of change the whole atmosphere of the club. So that, you know, that there's that context to it as well. And even though this season, that was only their fourth win, I think, his stock has risen higher, I think among Fulham fans too. He wasn't the flavour of the month necessarily last season. They had lot, As I say, they, they liked to dominate the ball. There wasn't particularly the always the incisive football that they wanted to see. So, you know, he wasn't he wasn't universally loved last season. And this season, I think they're appreciating that he's a he's an astute tactician, and he's you know he's he's tweaked the team a little bit, but they still play good football and they're good to watch. Yeah, I think it's worth remembering also that as they went down the last time they were in the Premier League, um, Tim Ream came out and said uh, the dressing room isn't together. There's no camaraderie. It's a bit of a mess in there, and I think for a manager to be able to mend that whilst navigating a way through the championship which is a very tough place to escape from and then keep having to then do a rebuild in in full glare of everyone because he's doing the rebuild whilst they're getting to grips with their next experiment in the Premier League and people are laughing at them 
Jamie Carragher on Sky Sports guaranteeing they're going to go down because they look so woeful at the back. So he's he's had hurdles to overcome. And I think if you list them all out, even though they are currently in the bottom three, I think their trajectory looks good. And I think it's good that the club's stuck with him because he's had a lot, he's had a hell of a lot on his plate and he seems to find a solution each time. And you mentioned luck, Gregor. There have been a lot of games this season where you must have watched the whole of the Fulham match and thought, I don't know why they didn't win that. A lot of nil-nils that shouldn't have been nil-nil. Alison, Newcastle might have to make a decision with their manager soon. Steve Bruce, two wins in 16. You get the feeling it's one of those. The perception changes the moment Fulham win another game and that could easily be next weekend against Crystal Palace and the pressure would be heaped on him at St. James's Park. Um are they going to stick by Steve Bruce, do you think? I honestly don't I think I've seen Newcastle play really atrociously. And in a lot of defeats, I felt they were unlucky. They've been really unfortunate that Callum Wilson, who gave them that sense of anything could happen, is injured. I've, even in defeat, I think they sometimes look um, quite well organised, quite attractive. I've seen them play really well under Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce is very calm in the face of the strangeness that goes with Newcastle. A lot of fans dislike him, want him out. There's this relentlessness about the owner doesn't want to be there and um, will they ever be sold? It's, It's a strange place. I don't see, given the resources, how making a change now could do much but it's entirely down to Bruce and whether he can keep that that kind of demeanour of, yes, this is possible, we can still do it. It's all about that at this stage, I think. If they have a couple of bad losses and Bruce starts to say things like, there's nothing more I can do, then he'll be out because then you have to get rid of him. But if he if he's if he manages to portray a sense of, you know, we've got we've got we've got good people here, let's not forget the good things we've done. This is a blip. We'll start climbing again. I think you've probably got to have faith in him. <laughs> it's an interesting one to see if the Newcastle fans are going to keep the faith in someone they probably never had any faith in in the first place. But it's going to be a a big end to the season for those teams down at the bottom. Intriguing to see Fulham have played their way into it. Gregor, a quick word on your team, Sheffield United. I'll call them that because you, you backed <laughs> them from the start to stay up. You thought Chris Wilder was going to have enough. That defeat, I think that's it, right? Yeah, although I'm, I'm more easy to say that after I, I did a, a press conference with Sheffield United um, on Friday, and Chris Wilder in front of like all the all the gathered press started uh, saying, I think he was talking about Keenan Bryan not being able to take a throw in, and then I've said to I've said in this podcast before that was the single worst aspect of my game, and he, so he just started launching this tirade about mocking my throw-ins in front of the all the gathered media <laughs> so I'm okay about saying yeah they're down yeah yeah <laughs> no I mean they, look again they, it was pretty fine margins it has been all season I think before that I think that's a 14th game I think I'm right in saying that they've lost by one goal um, I've been through the kind of the injuries that have disrupted them he you know, when it was put to him what's been the difference this year he said it was fine margins last year we were a success and it's fine margins this year. Injuries, individual errors. You know, he, he defended the goalkeeper, but he's not been the same as Dean Henderson. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, there's 
it's injuries to players that kind of just really disrupt the system that have, that have been such a success for them. I've said it before, Jack O'Connell, huge player for them. They've not been able to do it and they've tried to reject the back three all the time. Um, players in midfield like Norwood and Fleck have had big dips in form. There's just, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of little factors and it looks like Sheffield United, you know, they could be a record-breaking, they have been a record-breakingly bad team. I don't think they are. And part of the reason I was, you know, I did a piece of the weekend, I think even if, you know, they, they'll go down, Sheffield United, even if Fulham go down, Stick with Parker, stick with Wilder. Look at Norwich last season. Uh, from what they're, from what they're doing this season, from last season, if there is, you know, Parker kind of agreed with it. He said, if there's processes in place, and that's what I focus on, like every day in training, then and before the next game, as long as you're focusing on those processes, nothing has to change. And if they're a club that's kind of, I don't think there's that much wrong with either of them. They don't have they don't have people who can score goals, and they've had. Fulham have, so, have showed up at the back. Sheffield United have had injuries at the back. I don't think there's much wrong with them. The odds were always stacked against them. One might do it. One's not going to. But next season, they've got Wilder. They've got the core of that team. They'll be in a good place to come back. Let's keep our managerial theme going as well. We've spoken about so many so far today on the Game Podcast. Um, we're looking at the appointments made of late in the Championship next. Jonathan Woodgate handed the reins at Bournemouth until the end of the season after two wins from his four league games in interim charge. That's following, of course, Jason Tindall's sacking. And after Bristol City said goodbye to Dean Holden, it's reported that the former Leicester and Watford boss Nigel Pearson will be taking over also until the end of the season there. Alison, what is with all the, the lack of commitment? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I think you can get away with uh, these sort of short-term appointments because we're in weird times and money's an issue. I, I don't think clubs quite know what they'll have available uh, beyond the next few months. The, the, you know, financially, I think you'd be a fool if you're in charge of any football club, uh, championship included, going downwards, if you started committing money to to long-term deals. Because what happens is you, you, you set up a contract with the manager and then it doesn't work out. You have to pay him off. Even if he's been really rubbish, you still have to pay him off. And that's just money down the drain in times when you're not, you, your income's um, reduced. So it's perfect business sense and it almost an excuse also and I'm sure when they're in discussion they would say to people like Nigel Pearson this isn't a reflection on you this is the market at the moment this is the way the world is let's just keep it short term and it makes sense also in a footballing way because I don't you 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 could argue well if I've only got a short-term contract I can't plan for the future and any good business needs forward planning I can't what's the, my incentive to bring players through now with a view to what they'll be like in a year's time or 18 months time I haven't got an incentive to do that but if you want to impress your new boss um, you, you still do those things and maybe if they only want you to concentrate on the short term results anyway that's what you'll, you'll focus on and get them out it's a really short term world isn't it football very few very few clubs go for dynasties. So um, it's understandable. Um, it's an extra layer of short-termism in an already short-term world, but uh, I wouldn't criticise either club for taking those views when they know they're struggling for dosh. 
Matt, how, how big are these two as risks? Nigel Pearson, a fantastic uh, track record and great experience. Jonathan Woodgate, not so much. He was the borough boss. He was sacked with them level on points with the relegation zone. Um, I think he went to Bournemouth on the recommendation of Tony Pulis, who he had been his previous first team coach who told Bournemouth he'd be a good first team coach that was underneath Jason Tindall and a week later Jason Tindall was sacked and Jonathan Woodgate found himself in interim charge and now he's got the full-time job well until the end of the season um is that a risk for you is this an invitation for me to talk about QPR beating them on uh (laughs) go for it I can, it, on fire. <laughs> I can describe it in absolutely loving detail, especially every single movement of Charlie Austin. I mean, we thought we we thought we loved him the first time around, but he's returned and six in seven and just sticking him on the pitch seems to change the entire dynamic of, uh, of a team. But uh, is that enough about Charlie Austin or do you want me to carry <laughs> on? Um, but no, I think, uh, you know, I've, I think the Woodgate one is clearly a gamble. I mean, to be honest, watching Bournemouth play, they they have got enough players to be that they should be pushing hard for promotion. There's no doubt about that. There, there is, you know, it's one of those games where you watch them thinking, how how are we winning this? Because there is such talent in that team. Um, so that brings instant expectations on it, and I I almost don't envy Woodgate because I think you know. Being, he's thrust into it uh, with an expectation, right? Get us up, get us up there, and 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 um, yeah, get us up, and and that's tough. I think Pearson makes a lot more sense. Um, I can see why they've gone for it. Uh, obviously, with Pearson, the, the the sort of risk there is that you'll end up rowing with him. Um, he does, you know, he's uh, extremely strong-willed. Um, he tends to tell a board um, what he thinks of them. Um, he tends to make his feelings pretty clear. Um, now, provided they're willing to work with someone with that sort of approach, then I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Bristol City have got they've definitely got the potential to be, you know, at, at least playoffs. So, and I would suspect that Nigel Pearson is capable of getting them there. I agree. Pearson, Pearson makes sense. He could provide an immediate fill-up. He's... That's a, that's a that is a good club and a good job for someone. They they've just built a new training ground, developed Ashton Gate, got a, you know a good good owner, a good setup. Um, yeah, he's got he's got a chance to prove himself, and you know even in the championship, looking at the table, ten points, it's a be a big ask to get into the playoffs now, but it's not impossible. So, you know, I think that that's one that suits both parties personally. Uh, the Woodgate one, I think, is bizarre. I, he was deeply unimpressive at Middlesbrough, and you know, I'm not saying he's not a good coach. I'm not saying you know, I don't I don't know Jonathan Woodgate, but Middlesbrough were very unimpressive during his spell there. Uh, the football was impressive. Really, his reaction to to all the kind of to any criticism too was pretty unimpressive. He was quite combative, um, and that was just a disaster. Really, that was that was supposed to be a kind of new era for for Middlesbrough after Pulis and you know blooding youngsters into the into the team uh, a more kind of prog- progressive brand of football disaster so he's, he's I don't think he knew Tyndall really particularly well either as you say it was a, a recommendation and within a few days of Tyndall going he's he stepped into the breach and it's now been billed as some, somehow as the kind of continuity choice um, so you know there's who knows the, Big names were mentioned, Thierry Henry and Patrick Vieira. And you look at the market and it's a strange one just now. I, I still think Paul Cook's someone who people should be turning to. I think he's 
done a brilliant job wherever he's been. But yeah, Bournemouth bizarre. And I think actually, if I'm a Bournemouth fan, I'm I'm a little bit worried now about their their kind of stewardship. Max and when Max Demon bought that club in 2011, he had the easiest open goal in bringing Eddie Howe back to the club, and then he watched a, someone who had a, a remarkable connection to the club basically enact a miracle, gave him the money to do so, and now. You know, he's. I don't think. I think it was harsh to get rid of Tindall. I'm not saying he was doing a great job, but they were they were firmly placed in the in the playoffs. He knew the players, and they didn't really have a succession plan. If Woodgate's a succession plan, that that's worrying for me. So, yeah, we'll see what happens between now and the end of the season. But I would be slightly worried if I was a Bournemouth fan. It's maybe billed as sort of the young guard, these younger managers in the shape of Woodgate going into a championship job versus versus the experienced old guard of someone like Pierce. And I, I personally wonder why um, Howe wasn't given a, a quick call up and said, will you do the job till the end of the season since you're not doing much? I think he was. There are reports where Howe was definitely sounded out, I think, for Bristol City. And I think he's got his heart set on a Premier League job. Uh, you know, I thought that would be a good job for him too. As I say, that's a good club. It's got a bit of investment behind it. It's got good infrastructure. It's got a decent squad. So, you know, I, I would have thought so. But I think uh, Eddie said no. Alison, what do you think approaches better in a league like the Championship? So many fans were arguing over the weekend over, the, over Jonathan Woodgate's um, appointment and some of the, the stories around Patrick Vieira and Thierry Henry that you, you need to have Championship experience, you need to have played in the league or, or know it. You know, we get those stories about how it's so rigorous and there are so many games. Um, however, I think five of the top six in the Championship right now never managed in the Championship in terms of managers before they came to their current clubs. Um, does it make much of a difference in your opinion? I think it'd be oddly narrow-minded if if you were a championship club and thought you could only appoint someone who had managed there before and knew it inside out. I'm just disappointed that Thierry Henry wasn't signed, so I couldn't I couldn't relate my story of interviewing him over candlelight. But never mind. <laughs> That'll have to wait for when he does come back to the UK. He would have made Jonathan Woodgate seem like a sensible appointment to be honest I mean I just you know, I, I agree with everything that Greg has said it doesn't it doesn't that one doesn't add up but Thierry, Thierry Henry would have added up even less to me to be honest but one thing one the thing fact he's in the frame is another thing that doesn't reflect particularly well on well I, I, I don't know about that um, the Reading boss is it Paunovic I think he had like a 30% win rate when he was at Chicago Fire in the MLS he hasn't done a bad job at Reading Thierry Henry at least has managerial experience. I know other managers were being mentioned who had none in the championship. Um, Jonathan Woodgate's there. He's done an uninspiring job, but people in the MLS say, even though the results might have gone, might not have gone his way while he was there for Thierry Henry, that he, he did instill some good things into his side and in particular the club. But, you know, he's been Belgium's assistant manager previously. He was at Monaco. Okay, that was a pretty disastrous spell, but... You know, it, it's not unlike the other appointments that are made in the championship, is my point. I'm not saying he's a standout candidate, but I'm not sure he's that disastrous either. It's why you're appointing him, isn't it? I mean, are you appointing him because you look you, you you look at his record and think, yeah, um, that looks great when it doesn't. Or and you look at him because you think, um, you know, he's the guy who can, just fits our club because of X, Y, and Z. Or are you thinking, bloody hell, we can get Thierry Henry. That'll put bums on seats. So it's, you yeah, know, I, but- I, the serious point from my candlelit interview was I interviewed him when he'd left Arsenal and gone to Barcelona and he was 
he was pretty like, you know, oh, this is a bit boring. Oh, this is all very boring. And then until until I asked him what he missed about life in England, and he sparked into life when he talked about how much passion and love he has for English football, not just the Premier League, English football, the way English fans are, the passion they have for their teams, how intense it is. And I honestly think, I disagree with you, Gregor. I think if he had been appointed, I'm not saying it necessarily would have been amazing, but I don't think you, I think he would have given it everything. And his CV isn't actually all that bad. And you, you, that's the point of the way the managerial merry-go-round works, isn't it? You, often you see managers appointed. Necessarily managers are appointed because they've failed somewhere else, because they're available. They've either been sacked or it's just, just not gone right. And yet they pop up somewhere else. And they pop up somewhere else because their new club decide, well, they've le- they'll have learned they won't have learned on my time. They'll have learned on someone else's time where they went wrong. So Jonathan Woodgate had a pretty rubbish time at Middlesbrough. But, you know, if you're American, in America, that's seen as great. You've learned. So when you go to your next big profile job, you will have made all those mistakes on someone else's money. You've come to us. You've got a point to prove. We like that because everyone's everyone like Gregor Robertson is slagging you off. He wants to prove, <laughs> wants to prove Gregor Robertson wrong. So he does... He, do, he doesn't make the same mistakes twice. He comes in and also he's been with them for a few weeks. They've seen something about the way the players have responded to him. It can't be utterly ridiculous because, they, I mean, they, they can't be so badly owned that they ignore the fact. I mean, if the players were saying, oh, we don't like this at all, he wouldn't have been appointed. He will have learned from everything he did wrong. And that's, that's the way, that is, that is the way everywhere in football. You hope that the, player, the manager you appoint learns something not on your paycheck. Can I just say, by the way, on Alison telling Thierry Henry stories, I'll, I'll get mine. And she gets a candle at dinner with Thierry Henry. My, my Thierry Henry story involves me missing seven missed calls from number withheld one day um, and suddenly getting a message from the Arsenal press office saying, has Thierry got a hold of you? Uh, and and uh, saying no, but I've had seven missed calls while I've been doing something else. And it was to shout at me for suggesting that something I think basically I suggested in the 15th paragraph of a match report that William Gallas had bollocked him for something whereas he was insisting that he was bollocking William Gallas for a mistake and how dare was <laughs> I, how how dare I to have um, suggested the other way around and to have, have have suggested that he had erred in any particular way in that match so see he cares he cares Matt it was the very opposite of a candlelit dinner, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> That's what you need, the forensic details. He's the only person who's ever got to the 15th paragraph of one of my match reports, which is... <laughs> <laughs> After Alison's soliloquy there, I've better defend myself. I think, I'm not, like, I hope Jonathan Woodgate has learned. I hope, I don't will, you know, wish him any ill will. And I don't, I'm just saying that when you look at what Bournemouth, has happened at Bournemouth in the last eight months, after Howe's departure, he turned to Tyndall and he did not give him the time when they're still, as I say, firmly rooted in the playoffs. He didn't give him the time and there was no plan afterwards. I mean, you look at what's happened since someone who pitched up a few days before Tyndall was was sacked was kind of, it was him or Thierry Henry. <laughs> that, that to me doesn't show any sense of kind of coherent strategy. A guy who turned up a few days as an assistant to Tyndall or uh, one of the best players of the last in 40 years or something who as no matter what you say has had a pretty underwhelming coaching career so far so 
as I say, if I was a Bournemouth fan, I'd be slightly uneasy right now. And as we speak, Joey Barton is back in football management as well. After a pretty decent job at Fleetwood Town, he is now the new Bristol Rovers boss. Um, look, so many choices a- for this week's journey, man. <laughs> so many choices. <laughs> Make sure you're off to Bristol. Um Look, it's pretty much been a managerial special. So so why don't we end on a piece that Paul Joyce has written in the Times this weekend about the Merseyside derby, but really reflecting on the two managers, Jurgen Klopp and Carlo Ancelotti. And he asked, would you rather the stubborn pr- approach of Jurgen Klopp at the moment or the more practical Ancelotti? Right now, Alison Rudd, who would you prefer? That's the most stupid question here <laughs> you've ever asked in your entire career. Do you not think that Jurgen Klopp should take a small leaf out of Carlo Ancelotti's book at this point in time when things are going so badly and be maybe a little bit more safety first? I think he's overly safety first, actually. I would have, if I, far be it from me to suggest what Jurgen should and should not have done differently, because hindsight's one of those things. But what niggles me most about, they've had this, the defeat against Everton, highlighted that they've had 18 centre-back pairings this season. That is ludicrous, utterly ludicrous. I defy Ancelotti or anybody to be able to handle that level of disruption, injury after injury. I, but, but with hindsight, given that the first one was Virgil, I might, I think, I do wonder how the season might have panned out differently had... Klopp decided, look, what I'm going to do in these exceptional circumstances is I'm going to stick with Reese Williams and Nat Phillips and make make them a partnership. They're young and they're fit. They're keen. Um, I actually like them both as players and the mistakes that we've seen them make have simply been because they don't get enough match time in competition. And I think if he'd done that and let that sort itself out, he could have put Fabinho and Henderson in midfield and then that would have just helped the team be more uh, secure mentally more than anything else I just think it's really hard to it's it's like it's a panic all the time about how we're going to make the defence work and that's always had every single match that's had a knock-on effect a knock-on effect to the rest of the team so I don't I don't I, but that's with hindsight how did how could Klopp have known that it would be, it would get worse every single week with with news from the the treatment room. So uh, he's allowed he's allowed to do it the way navigate it out the way he wants. Um, and Ancelotti, I just feel slightly yes, of course he's got an amazing history CV. I don't I don't think he's quite as remarkable as everyone's saying. He, okay, he beat Liverpool. Anyone can beat Liverpool at the moment, but he lost to Fulham and he lost to Man City. So where where are the fireworks? I don't see why there are fireworks. And it's also taken Ancelotti an awful long time. And I could have told him this day one, you don't play Gilfie Sigurdsson and James Rodriguez on the pitch at the same time. And he is only just beginning to realise it. (laughs) And it's Gilfie the one that's winning as well out of the two of them. Gregor Robertson, stubborn Jurgen Klopp or practical Carlo Ancelotti? I like practical Ancelotti. I like that he's, he's the kind of arch pragmatist. And there's a really good comment I'm probably going to, balls this up but under the time under that piece Paul Joyce's piece said it was about something about if he doesn't have the right colours on the palette he'll kind of mix them to make to paint a paint an adequate picture or something like that and that's kind of that sums him up he's 
he looks at what he's got and very often in his career has been kind of world-class elite footballers and it's not at Everton and you know when there's been an issue with the defence he's changed to three at the back or he's 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 tweaked the system slightly he's always kind of correcting and, and filling the filling the filling the gaps so um and he's he's just so likable you can see the players really engaged engaged by him and and you know the sight of uh, big dunk carrying off down the touchline or kind of embracing him in a big bear hug and Ancelotti looks like he'd rather be anywhere else than in a bear hug by big dunk <laughs> um but it's a, it's a it's kind of i don't know and i also liked his reaction to it as well i like the fact that he's saying yes this, i know i understand this is a big a big thing but he was quite kind of he's playing it down saying it's three points um i don't think we can say this historic he's got he wants to see he's got a bigger vision for everton and if he's given long enough to long enough there then i think he can he can get them in the top four undoubtedly so i know that's not an answer because at the same time i i know everyone's calling for jürgen to to do something different now i i, I don't think he's gonna i think it's like it's like asking bielsa almost to do something different it was a pointless conversation I don't think he's going to I think it's going to be the high pressing high octane football and if they've got holes at the back they need to score more goals I think the biggest criticism of Liverpool is what they've done in January Kabak already I feel sorry for Kabak already he looks like he's treading water he's come into a difficult situation big hole in defence but he's not he doesn't look like their answer Ben Davis hasn't ever had a shot yet how Liverpool in the state that they were in defensively have left themselves in arguably a worse situation after the January transfer window is the first the first major glitch in the Liverpool system for a number of years. And so that's the first time that really I could say so they're deserving of some criticism. Matt, do you think uh, Jurgen Klopp should adopt some of the pragmatism of Carlo Ancelotti? I thought you were going to say, because it's Ancelotti or Klopp, um, who would you go for a pint with? And I was going to say that's actually, um, of all the Premier League managers, that would that would be probably one of the toughest toughest questions, wouldn't it? I'd, you know, different, different, um, very different characters. But I think, yeah, definitely two of the most engaging um, and impressive guys. I mean, and, you know, they're... Uh, the intensity of one and the the sort of beautifully um, laid back style of the other, um, brilliant contrast. But uh, yeah, both top of the game, which is why it feels yeah. I, I think the question I I I think Alison is right. It's a bit of a I know I know I know why you've asked the question because it's in that quite smart eye you know, eye grabbing headline on Paul Joyce's piece, but it doesn't seem to sort of. Yeah, it doesn't. They've both got methods that have worked over a long time for themselves, and uh, I think you know, trying to judge Klopp at the moment in a, the maelstrom that he's in. Um, I know we have to, but the, like Addison says, when 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 you're down to about the 18th choice centre centre half pairing, then these are not normal times. That's for sure. Is Ancelotti not now got the better of Klopp in their meetings? Quite possibly. Yeah, quite possibly. I think it's four three in wins now so don't be many managers in European football who've got a, a better record against Klopp so he's certainly he's he's no fool some people some people said you know when Ancelotti got the Everton job he's always walked into places where he just needs to kind of add, sprinkle a little bit of stardust he's already got the players he's already got you know walking into Real Madrid or Bayern Munich or not I think he's shown already with Everton at a different level completely different level that he's still a very astute coach. Absolutely, I think he is. And a Merseyside derby win at Anfield for Everton. They'll still be celebrating that one. 
thank you very much for being with me for the past hour or so on the game podcast Matt Dickinson Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd we will leave it there just remember to all of you guys listening you can give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from and make sure you're subscribed you can get a digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times for more of our award winning journalism across all of your devices sign up today and get one month three just go online search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started we will see you on Thursday Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become This week Booker Prize winning author Douglas Stewart talks candidly about coping with his mother's alcoholism and being gay in 80s working-class Glasgow I was attacked very violently when I was I think I was 15 and actually it was an old Glaswegian housewife who was driving by she thought they were stamping on a dog and so stopped her car and got out and chase these boys away and and at the centre of it was me. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Douglas Stewart in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.